We were thinking about these kind of new clothes that we wear as believers. It's as if we have this, this new outfit that we're to pop on every morning. And we need to remember to do that. We, we don't wear that old stuff anymore. We wear this new stuff now. And we need to keep doing that every morning. We are new people in Christ. And that is to shape the way that we live each morning. And this week, Paul presses that in, that idea in a bit, and he rubs it in for us to show us what this new outfit looks like in, in three different areas, I think, or at least three different areas. Um, I want to give you a, a warning at the start that, number one, it is quite practical. It, it gets into the nooks and crannies of daily life, the stuff maybe that people, we don't want them to see that much. Um, second thing to say is it's really quite challenging. I'm aware of that. And thirdly, really this is three or four sermons in one. So um, we're going to be here till half past one. We're not. Um, but forgive me for skating over stuff. This might be the kind of chapter you could dig into this week and pray through. Just because there's so much in there. And just because of time, we're going to have to um, skate slightly. The foundation for this week was the summary section of last week. Do you remember where it ended up if you were here? Verse 1 and 2. This is the foundation for this week. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to the Lord. Who are we? We are dearly loved children. People who are to live a life of love and so people who follow the example of Jesus in all things. And what does that look like on a Monday? What does that look like behind closed doors when nobody else is watching you? Well, says Paul, I think in 1 to 7, he's talking primarily about sex, sexual immorality, how the gospel changes our understanding of sex. 8 to 16, it's slightly more general sin, but I think still related to 1 to 7. And then 17 to 21, it's, it's how we relate to others in a church even, what church family life ought to look like. So first point, verse 1 to 7, don't join in the idolatry of sex. Instead, love selflessly. I read a very honest Christian article again recently. Um, Let me quote to you a few paragraphs from it. It was an author who talked about their struggle with pornography. They said this, Porn says that you are God. You are to be worshipped. Unlike the life the real God has for you, porn offers a world where there is no risk, no failure, no weeds to contend with. It is the consumption of image bearers. This writer continues, I hid my addiction from everyone for many years. I lived a double life. There was the person everyone knew, a responsible family man, friendly, natural leader, lover of jazz and growing roses. And then there was the secret life, Mr. Hyde, selfish, impatient, prone to rage. And then he says this, he says, the next time you're sitting in a church pew, look to your left and then to your right. If you do not have a serious problem with porn, then statistically speaking, one or both of those sitting next to you does. And I make no apologies for starting off like that. Because you will be as aware as I am that we live in a sex-obsessed society. The kind of place where pornographic material is just a couple of taps away on the device in your hands a channel hop on the TV. And yet, isn't it striking that ours is a a culture that's so confused about sex? 
it thought it was throwing off the shackles of repression and grasping after freedom, liberation, but then it's left more confused and enslaved and damaged than it was before. Thing is, I'm not sure whether Paul would have batted an eyelid in a culture like that. Their, their prevailing sex culture would have been just as permissive as ours, not as shiny or glamorous or photoshopped, but just as pervasive and perverted. We mentioned him before, at the heart of Ephesus, there would have been um, a temple, temple of Artemis, or, or Diana as she was known. She was a goddess of fertility. And so that place would have housed sexual orgies. Simple as that. That would have been part of their worship, even. And imagine you've come from that kind of a background and you heard the message of Jesus and you come into church and you're thinking, how do I think now about sex? You know, you weren't just hearing about these temple fertility cults. You were a part of them. You were immersed in them. That was your way of life for years, for decades even. How do you relate now to sex? Or imagine that the Lord brings a local sex worker from East Oxford to faith. And he or she comes in. Someone who's been caught up for it in years, decades even. How do they relate now to sex? Or someone who is new to faith and just has a, a, a messy sexual history. How are people like that to live now? What does putting off and putting on mean for them now? Maybe that's you. Or if it's not, how about just living for Jesus in a culture that is shouting all the time about sex in the office, on the internet, on your phone, on the TV? What does the daily putting off and putting on look like? What does it mean for us, very practically? Well, Paul says for us in these verses, for the Christian, it is to affect both what we do and what we say those things both matter. Our actions and our words matter. See that in verse 3? What we do, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's people. By, by sexual immorality and impurity, he's talking about using sex in a way that God did not intend for it to be used. It's sex outside the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. This idea of greed, I think, is woven in there because it's kind of a sexual lust for more. More, insatiable, never satisfied. Another conquest, always wanting more and more and more. and thinking maybe this one will satisfy, but no, it never does. Actually, it was a similar idea last week, 4 verse 19. Having, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed again. They're looking for something to satisfy but always looking in the wrong place. It'll never work. And you see, he says it's not even a hint. Not even a hint. Not the tiniest bit. Paul is really stark. No room for flirting with it. No room for toying with it. This is, in your new life, this is, this is the thing we put off now. That's not you anymore. Those are not the clothes you wear anymore. So it's what we do, it's a physical act, but then he's stark again. He's just talking about such things. Verse 4, 
nor should there be obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking. Maybe it's the snigger over the rude joke or the crude language or the suggestive comments or just a bit of innuendo or, or the desire for the details of somebody else's sin. He says, no, no, for God's new, united, distinctive, holy family, that kind of talking just doesn't belong. That's just not welcome here, he says. In fact, we saw it last week with Matt. What we say really matters. Words are so powerful. Our mouth is a window into our hearts that you can peer into and you can know what somebody else is like by the words that they say, what comes out of them. To use... Ephesians 2 language from a few weeks ago, those kinds of words, they are dead in transgressions and sins words. They are gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature words. They are by nature objects of wrath words. That's the old you. That's not you now. Those are not to be your words because no, it is by grace you have been saved words for us. It's you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, words for us. It's blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, words. The way that we speak matters. And so verse 3, these things are improper for God's holy people. They are out of place, verse 4. You can be sure, verse 5, that no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It's interesting, isn't it, in verse 5, how he diagnoses the heart of the issue, that word there, do you see it? Idolater. Maybe that's not surprising. Maybe, maybe as they look for something to satisfy them, maybe we realise it is a, an issue of worship. You're looking for something to save you, something to give you joy, something for salvation, but you're always looking in the wrong place. They love something else more than God, the God who made them, the God whom they were made for. I was reflecting on this, and maybe many of us will know people down the years who, who we thought had started really well on the Christian life. We thought they were going for it. We thought they looked strong and healthy until they meet a, a non-Christian boyfriend or a girlfriend, who, not believers, and maybe eventually they bow to the pressure they become sexually active with them, and in the end, they end up choosing sex over Jesus. And what they thought initially was a lifestyle choice, and they were in control, and it was all going to be okay, they end up becoming enslaved to it, and they give up on their faith entirely. Maybe the relationship ends even, and they are too ashamed to come back again. That's, that's why in verse 5 there's no inheritance. Something or someone else has captured their heart, pulled them away, stolen their worship. Remember the alternative, one and two? Follow God's example, therefore. Dearly loved children, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. Rather than selfish, me-centered, sex-worshipping, idolatrous love, Never satisfied, all about me. Remember how God has loved you. Remember the gospel. Walk in the way of love, says Paul. Just as Christ did, live a life of selfless love. It's very, it's very contemporary. I'm really struck by this. Maybe, maybe you're a new student here, you're trying, it's that kind of time of year in Oxford. 
Maybe you're just getting to grips with the kind of culture you've been propelled into. And Freshers' Week was a, well, a mix of emotions. Maybe you're tempted by it. Paul is really stark. He's really uncompromising. He's not at all politically correct. It's interesting. I do actually wonder whether our culture has shifted over these last few years. As Christians, in one sense, we stick out more. But I do wonder whether as the disastrous fallout from this shift becomes more and more blatant and lives are destroyed by it, I I wonder if the alternative lifestyle will become more attractive to many watching in. The wisdom in keeping sex in the context that God designed for it. Um, Pornography is a great case in point. Sorry, I know Explorer in here. Maybe I should have given a a warning to the parents first. We're just going to crack on. Um, It's a case in point. People are beginning to see the horrible effects of the addiction to porn that's so common now. I watched last week even a Hollywood A-lister talking about this. Younger generations are being ruined. Their brains are becoming wired in different ways. It's fundamentally changing people. People's expectations of sex. People are being exploited, abused, taken advantage of. And I wonder actually if the world is slightly waking up to that. Seeing the wisdom in the kind of stuff that Paul might say here. If I've touched a nerve this morning, or if you struggle with these things, and the statistics would say that folk in this room do struggle with these things, step one is to let some light in. Talk to somebody. Maybe you've never spoken to anybody about this. Maybe this is your secret shame that you just kept inside. Someone you know, someone you trust, someone you love, Maybe someone at home group, someone over coffee. There's always enough grace. Always enough grace. Um, There may be a a men's breakfast happening November, I believe. Um, Date's not quite sorted yet for that, but if that's something you'd be interested in, maybe to talk about some of this stuff, to be honest, to be open, to pray, to support. There's always enough grace. Come and chat to me, and we'll see if we can link you up. But Paul says this is not you anymore. One to seven, don't join in the idolatry of sex. Instead, love selflessly. Now, eight to 16, and we'll be quicker in the second half. That's the first third, really. The last two thirds will be much quicker, don't worry. Join in. Don't join in with the world's sin. Instead, expose its emptiness. How are we to be in the world, but not of the world? What does that look like? What does that mean? I think actually we are still primarily in a sort of sexual arena in these verses, but I think the lessons are applicable to other areas of life. Have a look down. I think there's a key word, and you get it in verse 11 and in verse 13. He says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. You get it in 13 as well. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. We are to be those who expose. And by expose, we're not talking about tabloid gossips. This isn't sort of Daily Mail seeking to shame various Hollywood stars caught with X or Y or caught in compromising positions. That's not what we're talking about. That doesn't work if you've got verse 12 in mind. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. So the question is, how do you expose something that it's shameful even to mention? How does that work? 
I think the answer is you expose it by shining the light of your life upon it. So as Hannah brought out for us earlier, there's a whole load of light and darkness imagery in this passage. Do you see, so verse 8, you were darkness. Or verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. That's, that's not you anymore. You were dark. You were in darkness. And however tempting it might be, you're not to look back through the keyhole at it. You're not to be tempted back by it. You're not darkness people anymore. You are light people now. And so, again, verse 8, you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Verse 9, the fruit of light is goodness, righteousness, truth. Verse 13, everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. So by our lives, we expose darkness. Maybe, maybe it's something like this. Imagine with me, you have Tanya, the technology teacher. I've tried to pick names that don't represent people in this room. So is anybody called Tanya? Good. Tanya is a technology teacher. She loves teaching. It's brilliant. She loves it. She adores it. It's her dream come true. She gets on really well with her pupils. She gets on really well with other staff members. But if she's honest, the worst thing about her job is the staff room. She finds the other teachers pretty difficult. Why? Because of the gossip that goes on there, the, the sordid details of different people's weekends. Who's been getting together with who and where and when? And the thing is, Tanya used to be a gossip before she became a Christian a few years ago. And she really feels the temptation to, to drag her back into that way of thinking, to what she once was. It's trying to, it's trying to suck her back into the gossip circles. But she refuses to listen. She's not going to get caught up in it. And she's doing okay at it. She prays daily about it. And actually, by God's grace, she's doing quite well. To the extent that a couple of her colleagues, who have known her since her PGCE year, have started to notice. Let's say Bob, the biology teacher. Adam, the art teacher. Hopefully no Bobs or Adams. They've noticed. They've noticed Tanya. They've noticed the difference it's made. They... They're having second thoughts too, and they're feeling convicted about getting kind of caught up in the sordid details. They start asking Tanya about her Christian faith. Why is she different now? Why doesn't she want to get sucked up in what happened on George Street on Friday night like she used to? And that conversation leads to more conversations, which leads to more conversations, which leads to an invite to church on a Sunday, which leads to more conversations and more conversations. And and which leads to them coming to do a Christianity Explored course, and which leads to them committing their life to Jesus, or, or something like that. And you see, where Tanya was darkness, so her new life of light exposes the darkness around her too, and, and they too end up becoming light. I think that's why verse 14 is there. We, you don't exactly know what it was, but maybe it's the, an early chorus that the church sang, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Do you see, Bob the biology teacher and Adam the art teacher, they were asleep, they were dead spiritually. But now, now Christ has shone into them, and they too are light. So let's ask God to help us in the messiness and the murk and the mayhem of normal life. To be different, to be light, to be those that expose 
darkness, to live as children of light in the Lord, to be distinctive, to live wisely, verse 15, to live carefully, verse 15, to make the most of opportunities, verse 16. I wonder where those dark situations are for you. As you look ahead to your week, as you flick through your calendar, where can you be light? Where can you be different? Because one more thing on this is, we are to work these things out. We, I think we're to actively think and to plan to prepare for them. Paul gives us stuff to chew over, so verse 10, find out what pleases the Lord. Or verse 17, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And if you find out what pleases God and understand what his will is, you won't just, sl- you see, you won't just slide into light living, No, it's thinking in advance. It's finding out. It's understanding. Maybe take some time this week in home group or over the dinner table or with a trusted friend thinking through, well, where can I be light? And what does that mean? What does that look like? So don't join in with the world's sin. Instead, expose its emptiness. Thirdly and finally, 17 to 21, don't be foolish about how you live. Instead, instead live the spirit-filled life. Do you want to know God's will for your life? God's will for your life is that you would be filled by the Spirit. And in 1 to 16, 1 to 17, 1 to 16, it's lots of negatives, lots of reminders, lots of don't go back to darkness, don't go back to death, don't go back to this. 17 and onwards is much more positive, if you like. It's the call to be filled by the Spirit. What is this new you now to be like? And the answer, well, verse 18, don't get drunk on alcohol. Don't be led by drunken desires and priorities. No, rather, we're to be filled with the Spirit. We're to have his priorities. We're to be led by him, says Paul. I mean, how many people have will look back on a night when they've had too much to drink and have regrets. But no, rather than being filled by wine, says Paul, you're to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember from Ephesians already? He already indwells Christians, chapter 1, 13 to 14. We've been marked by the Spirit. He's a deposit for us. Chapter 2, as a church, we are indwelt by the Spirit as a temple. But here... Here, the filling with the Spirit is to do with transformation, the way that we relate to others. It's the daily strengthening. It's interesting, isn't it? So often we think of what what would a Spirit-filled church look like. We maybe have other things in mind, other ideas, which may be valid. But here it is far less about the sort of miraculous and much more about the mundane. And there are four things in 19 to 21 Four things that lead from, that flow from our being filled with the Spirit. Have a look down. They are speaking to one another with psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. They are singing and making music from your heart to the Lord. Secondly, they are thirdly, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then fourthly, verse 21, we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this spirit who who unifies his church, 
who binds us together, who builds us together, God's people into one building, well, he wants to promote unity among us. A spirit-filled, showing God's wisdom to the cosmos-type church needs to be filled by God's spirit. We're going to look briefly at each of the four, and it will be brief, I promise. We'll do one and two together. Um, Words and worship, verse 19. Words, again, words are so powerful. Words can build up, and yet so easily they can tear down and destroy But we're to be a people who speak to each other truth, psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit. And we're to sing joyfully to the Lord. I think one kind of flows into the other almost. Horizontally, we we speak to each other, but vertically we praise God. So maybe a bit of homework might be, or each Sunday morning before you arrive, to, to deliberately resolve to come to church on a Sunday with the plan to build people up. How can I do that? I'm pretty sure no one is ever in danger of being over-encouraged. How can we build each other up? How can we speak truth to one another? So if that's one and two. Number three, thankfulness in verse 20. A spirit-filled church is a thankful church. Isn't it easy to whinge to God? to whinge to other people who will listen about our lot in life. Or at best, as we pray, we just cut through all the kind of thanks stuff and get onto the, to the shopping list of things we need. Thank you, Lord. But actually, if a spirit-filled church is a thankful church, then maybe we need to press pause and just thank him. Thanks for the good that he pours on us as individuals. He pours us on a church. Or more generally, the, the good that he's poured down on us through Jesus. Maybe, maybe this week, take... Chapter 1, 1 to 14, as part of your daily praying, pick a sentence each day, you would last two weeks of things to give thanks for. Or grab a journal, and in the evening, write out things for that day to be thankful for. How can we cultivate a culture of thankfulness? Thankfulness is the mark of a spirit-filled church. And yet, aren't we good at whinging so often? Verse 21, submitting. More on this next week. It's a bit of a red flag word currently in our culture, isn't it? But for now, for now, wouldn't it be amazing, wouldn't it be countercultural to be in a church where you just couldn't stop people submitting to one another? Nobody has an ego. No one's got an agenda. No one's got a soapbox to stand on. Everybody wants to be forgotten. Nobody wants to build their little kingdom. Just imagine that. Those people who prefer a longer service, they push for a shorter service because they can see the kids going crazy, the kids' leaders going crazy, and they're struggling as we get past 12 o'clock. We'll be okay. Imagine that. Those who prefer a longer service push for a shorter one. Those who push for a shorter service go for a longer one. Those who prefer one Bible translation want the other one because that's what everybody else prefers. Those who find home group really difficult, they know they have to go because they can be such an encouragement to others. And so they submit to one another that they might be encouraging and build each other up. Those people who love singing hymns, well, they want to sing more choruses because that's what the chorus lovers like. Those who want to sing more choruses, well, they push for hymns because they know the hymn lovers really want that. Can you imagine a spirit-filled church where submission is rife? 
I'm not sure what I should say, but you can put it like this, where, where submission spreads like an epidemic. Everybody is infected with it. They can't help but put somebody else's needs before their own. They can't help but put somebody else's needs first. And rather than pushing their own agenda or their own ego or their own priorities, as a community together, as a family, we submit to each other because of the love that we've been shown. And just think, wouldn't that be extraordinary? Wouldn't that promote unity? Wouldn't that shout to a watching world how good the gospel is? And say how good our God is. Let me pray. Father in heaven, there's so much in here. And so we pray for each of us that you would just give us perhaps one or two things this week to be chewing over, praying about. Lord, maybe it's, maybe it's the first third and there are there's sexual immorality, perhaps issues of pornography or whatever it might be, or a history or something that we've never shared. Lord, give us courage this week. Thank you that there's always enough grace. Lord, perhaps it's Perhaps it's the need to expose darkness by our light, to be different in the different contexts that you've called us to, and we know we so easily just blend in. Help us to think about, to prepare for, to, to work out what it means to be light into the different situations that you've called us to. And all we long to be a church that's filled by the Spirit, that, where unity is promoted where we, where we speak and we sing to each other, build each other up, encourage each other, where, where we are thankful and where we confess how easily we can just whinge. Or indeed where we submit to each other. Lord, fill us afresh, we pray, by your Spirit, for your glory and for our good. Amen.